Well, good evening, everyone. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be uh, focusing in on Jesus's interaction with Peter. And we're going to be looking at how God calls us as church to be people who see Jesus, who become like Jesus, in order that people can meet Jesus. That's what we're about. That's the meaning of church. We are here so that we can see Jesus. We are here so that together we can do that thing called discipleship where we become more like Jesus so that people can meet Jesus, see Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, so that other people can meet Jesus. It's what we are here for. It's our mission. It's why when we die, we don't just go straight to heaven. We're here because God has a purpose for us. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. And it's truly life. It's life. Better than we've ever known it. I wonder if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked them, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life to us. We thank you that it is the best gift that this world affords to us. Your word spoken to us. Your word given to us. And we are deeply grateful. We thank you that it is light to our feet. It is honey on our lips. 
Father, in your mercy, we ask this this evening that you would come and you would speak to us. Lord, you would take our hearts and our ears and our eyes and you would focus them all upon us. Father, would you help me as I preach? I thank you that when I am weak, you are strong. And I pray, Lord, that we might hear you together this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. The most breathtaking moments in life come when we have interaction with Jesus. When we meet him. When we hear his voice, when we come across him in the Bible and the word jumps out at us and we are held and grabbed hold of by Jesus and his spirit comes near and he whispers our name and he speaks to us deeply. That is what it means to be a Christian. It is to be in an intimate, real relationship with the living God, not a dead philosophy, not a cold, hard book. Not a great Sunday morning, evening club. But to be intimate with the breathtaking creator of the universe. If our faith is less than that, we have to ask ourselves some very real questions. We perhaps need to take time aside and say, Jesus, my heart has gone cold. My life no longer reflects you. I'm stuck in a rut. Would you come and open up the windows of my life? Would you come and breathe in with your powerful Holy Spirit? Would you come and melt my hard heart Replace my heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Unstop my ears and let me hear. It's so easy for any of us to fall into that trap of cold, listless routine with God. Yeah, he wants to meet with us. His arms are open wide tonight and he is here. To receive and speak and heal and meet any who come to him. I had a great moment this week with uh, my middle son, Mackenzie. He's 11 years, up, 11 years old. And, uh, you know, he's pretty much always fighting with his 13-year-old brother. It's what boys do, I think. So I've come to realize they fight. They try and outdo each other. They want to be the best. They want to be the strongest. You know, it's all very animal in our house. I'm the big silverback. And they're the little cubs fighting and rolling about. You know, that's what happens. Anyway, last week, uh, Mackenzie came up to me. I was sitting on the bed upstairs. And uh, he came running up and uh, he was angry, he was cross, his fists were clenched, his face was red, his eyes were wide, and he said, I do not like Callum. That's his older brother. And, you know, I've heard it all before. I said, well, you've said that many times before, Mac. He said, this time I really mean it. I wish he wasn't my brother. 
I really, really don't like him. And I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't reason with him when he's like this. But I'd just been and cleaned my teeth. And uh, we have one of those calendars where we clean our teeth that, that give us a little verse for the day, which is always lovely. And as we clean our teeth, we sort of look at that and memorize it and do different things with it. And uh, I, I read it and enjoyed it. And uh, I, I said to Mackenzie, I said, why don't you go in the bathroom and read the word there? You know, did you see it when you clean? I haven't cleaned my teeth. He said, well, go and clean your teeth. Uh, and, and have a look at that word. It was about strength and God's spirit being near us. And so off he went into the, the bathroom. And about three seconds later, I heard his giggle. And then his giggle turned into laughter. And he was roaring with delight. And uh, I said, what's up, Mac? He said, did you know, Daddy? Did you know? And I said, well, what? what are you talking about? And he came through. He'd ripped the date off on the calendar. And it said, let us remain in brotherly love. (laughs) In between me cleaning my teeth and me sending Mac in there, Joe had actually turned over the calendar and it was a new day. And uh, so it says a lot for how I was reading it the day before, doesn't it? So uh, she'd done that and the new day's word was, let us remain in brotherly love from the book of Hebrews. And Mackenzie's anger... An annoyance and frustration was transformed. He came in giggling, holding this piece of paper, and he said, He said, Daddy, look at this. And I read it. He said, I've been trolled by Jesus. <laughs> in Christian speak, that means I've been humiliated, spoken to, brought down a peg or two. All right? He says, I've been trolled by Jesus. And I said, Wow, Mac, that's impressive, isn't it? And he said, really, I'm going to keep this. I said, yeah, that's good. And then he turned to me. He said, Daddy, will you tell him at church? Like, <laughs> humble but highly visible. That's uh, my boys. He said, will you tell him all at church? And I said, well, why do you, you hate it when I tell him stories about you in church usually? He said, no, no. He said, uh, I, think, I think when Jesus speaks to one of your children, that's really, really important. I think you should tell the church. So job done. But they are the wonderful moments of life when Jesus breaks through and Jesus speaks deeply to us. And I love the fact that I played a little part in that. I said, go into the bathroom. I mean, I've got it all wrong, but I still, I've still taken some of that credit there. I said, I said go, and, go and have a look. I love the fact that even unknowingly, Somehow I pointed to Jesus and Mac heard his voice. I love that ministry. And that's the ministry of the church. That is what we are called to do. We are called to point out to the world, to the people around us, Jesus. And we'll do that by accident sometimes. I came across this in the week. At the age of 33, this is, uh, this is Nicky Gumbel. He's the vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton. And he wrote this, I think, at the beginning of this week or the end of last week. And this is what he said in his daily blog. At the age of 33, Barbara Clapham came to live in London. She decided she was going to look for a church. One Sunday morning, she arrived at Holy Trinity Brompton. The young woman who was welcoming people at the door smiled at her and asked her her name. Barbara said that it was because of that smile she decided to come back the following week. 
When she walked in the next Sunday, the same person said, Hello, Barbara. Because the person on the door remembered her name, she decided that she was going to come back every Sunday. A smile on the door meant she came back. Her name at the door meant she came back every week. Nikki Gumbel writes, that was 1947. This year, on the 4th of April, I attended a party to celebrate her 100th birthday. She made a huge impact on the life of Holy Trinity Brompton, including running the finances of the church for many years. I wonder whether the young woman on the door had any idea of the difference she made by smiling and remembering Barbara's name. It's amazing. A smile. A remembered name. It seems so simple. And yet somehow it points to Jesus. Sadly, at a church I was a a pastor of a few years ago, and I might just be going back to be their pastor, uh, I met a lovely couple. Uh, And they came to our church, and I loved them. They were beautiful. They threw themselves into everything. And one day I asked them, I said, what what made you come and join our church? Because where I'm going, there's a few churches in the area. I said, what made you come to us? Because you really, I mean, it's back roots. It's in the middle of nowhere, really. I said, what made you come here? Well, she said, we tried the other church in the town. And uh, we sat in there. We'd been in there about two minutes, uh, sitting at the back in one of the pews. And someone walked in, uh, and they looked at us with a face like thunder and said, you've stolen our seats. She said, we never went back. Which one do you want to be a part of? Which one points to Jesus? Jesus says if someone steals you your, your pew, give them the keys to your car as well. That's a rough translation of the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> you never know how you're going to point people to Jesus. In this passage, John the Baptist points two of his disciples to Jesus. And he merely says, behold the Lamb of God. The day before, he'd said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's all he did. Behold the Lamb of God. And these two fellas, Andrew for definite and John most probably, start following Jesus. This is what one person writes. There is always immense moral power, stroke I would say spiritual authority, in the testimony that emanates from an absorbed heart. So there's spiritual power from the testimony that emanates from an absorbed heart. There is nothing formal, official, or mechanical in such testimony. It is the pure fruit of heart communion with Jesus. And there is nothing like it. It is not a mere statement of true things about Christ. It is the heart occupied and satisfied with Christ. It is the eye riveted, the heart fixed, the whole moral being centered and absorbed on that one commanding object that fills heaven with his glory. When our hearts 
are consumed with Jesus, when he is the object of our affections and the one whom we find great satisfaction in, there are power. There is power in our smile and our welcome and our pointing. Behold the Lamb of God. We can never speak effectively for Jesus unless our hearts are filled with him. It's church. We're here to point the way to Jesus. After John points to Jesus, Andrew and Peter, uh, sorry, Andrew and John follow Jesus. And we're told in, in verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. William Temple writes, that is the greatest service that one person can render another. To point out Jesus, to introduce people to Jesus, to bring people to Jesus. That is what we are called to do. This isn't an entertainment society. It's not a cricket club. It's not a place where we come for a singer song, sing along. This is God's means on earth for creating a new nation, for establishing a new kingdom, for preparing a bride for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And our job is to point and say, behold, the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world. They're incredible words. Incredible words. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The imagery is from the Old Testament. It's particularly from the book of Exodus and the Passover, which, of course, we started this year reading. And uh, the image is one of the head of the household with his lamb. Every head of the household was to present a lamb to the temple. It was to be a year old. It was to have no broken bones. It was not to have gammy eyes or rubbish ears. It was to have good coat of hair. It was to be well fed and plump. It was to be a perfect specimen. And the head of the household would stand in line with this goat. I'm holding its legs, you see, like that. And here he would be, you know, the goat would be fighting because it's still alive. And he'd be in line with a load of other people. And there'd be <laughs> people being thrown about as the old lamb kicks off. And there they would be in line, shuffling forward. Because at the end of the line is a high priest. Or a priest. And you'd keep standing forward until it was your turn with the priest. And there he would take the lamb from you. And then would begin probably a, a minute's worth of inspection. He would check the eyes. So here we go, we're going to spin it round. He'd check the eyes. He'd look inside the ears. He'd stick it under his arm. 
and he would feel its plumpness and its fur. He might pull back different bits of it just to check it was all right. He needed to make sure it was a male, no broken bones. And all that inspection would take place. After about a minute of scrutiny, the priest or the high priest would hand the lamb back to the head of the household. And hopefully, he would say these words. That's a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And the man would take it and he would join the back of another queue. It's a bit like the post office. And he would join the back of this queue and he would shuffle his way forward to the altar. And there the lamb would be killed on behalf of the family. And their understanding was that God's anger against their sins, God's righteous wrath, would be turned away and would be put on the lamb. And not just God's anger at their sins and and their guilt, not just that, but, but the lamb's blood would have some kind of power in it. And the blood would not only, the the death would not only turn away God's anger, but the blood would wash them clean. It would take away all their sin. That's what they would do. Now, the amazing thing is, as these folks were queuing up, the high priest or the priest at the end couldn't care less what the person bringing the lamb looked like. They didn't care how long their hair was. Didn't care how how long it had been since they'd last been in the synagogue. He didn't ask them any questions about their prayer prayer life or their giving. He didn't sniff their breath to see if they'd uh, been drinking too much. Didn't check their fingers for nicotine stains. He only had eyes for the lamb that is an amazing thing the guy could have been rolling drunk the night before the guy could have been up to all kinds of mischief in fact in Job we're told that Job was a righteous man but if his children had a party or his children were up to stuff eating I know what my kids are like I'm going to go and sacrifice a lamb for them. I'm going to make a sacrifice for them so that God's anger won't rest on them. Amazing thing. Just didn't didn't come into the high priest's head at all. The high priest had only eyes for the lamb. And he said, this lamb is a pleasing sacrifice. Join the back of the queue. And here is John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. As God the Father looks down on us this evening, He doesn't see what you did last night. He doesn't look at what clothes you wear or whether you've got nicotine stains or your breath smells of booze. What He sees is the perfect Lamb of God who died in your place. It's the most one. It's good news, actually. When Jesus calls it good news, he's not making that up. It's not okay news. It's not great news until you actually step in and then you find it's a really heavy yoke around your head of legalism and do's and do's not. It is good news. 
When God looks at you, he sees his son who died on the cross. It's wonderful, good, freeing news. You are free of the law. Your sins do not count against you. You are free. There is no written record kept about you by God anywhere except the tears you've cried and the prayers you've prayed and that which you've done in Jesus' name. It's wonderful. And so John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these two, uh, Andrew and John, start to follow. I love that. They do something about it. They don't just hear it. Oh, that's very nice. They fall into step, fall into line, and start following Jesus. We talked a few weeks ago about the difference between owning something and and possessing something. You can own something and not possess it. For example, uh, you know, God willing, uh, we're buying a house. And there will come a day when that house belongs to us. Our money will have gone into a bank account, uh, someone else's, and their deeds will be exchanged and given to us. And then there might be a period of a few weeks before we move in and own it before we put our chairs and our beds in until we say to the children this is your new home then we'll owned it we'll have taken possession of it many of us own this that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin we, we own it, we know it It's up here. We sing about it and we're pleased about it. But we don't possess it. We're still wrapped with guilt. We still wonder if we are good enough for God. We still think that he's got a big stick and he's just waiting to whack us one around the head if we step out of line. We need to own this truth. As you come to Jesus, he takes away your sins. Claim, trust, believe in the forgiveness he has brought for you. Actively, as best we can, in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, actively reject feelings of guilt, unworthiness. It's a proactive, practical step that we need to do every day. This is a daily choice to take possession of the forgiveness that Jesus has made possible for us. That's one thing we need to do. Take that daily. But of course then Paul says, well, Should we sin as much as we like then? Because if grace abounds when there's sin, if Jesus overlooks it, if Jesus is the Lamb of God, can we do whatever we like? Can we sleep around? Can we get absolutely out of our heads on drugs and alcohol? Can we live however we want to? And Paul says, by no means. Of course not. 
Because not only did John and Andrew take hold of this by following, they kept in step. And they kept following. And Jesus gave them his heart and gave them his spirit. It's a sad truth. But when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, judgment seat of God, when we are called to give an account, whatever that will look at, look like, of our idle words and of our deeds, when we do come to give an account, we can't say to him, I couldn't help it. I did this, but I couldn't help it. It wasn't my fault. Because to everyone who has joined the path, to everyone who is following, who is in step with Jesus, in line with Jesus, he has poured out his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there in times of weakness to strengthen us, to hold us. And if we say to God, I couldn't help it, God may well turn to us and say, but I gave you my spirit. So that's quite a truth, isn't it? Jesus Christ is our sacrifice for our sin. But he gives us his heart. He gives us us, his spirit. So that over years, changed from glory to glory, we will fall in line. We will align ourselves with him in step, following him as church. We're going to look at that more next week as we talk about being like Jesus, being Christ-like. But these fellas hear him, they see him, Uh, They're pointed out to him and they follow. Beautiful. I love what Jesus says. He turns to them uh, and he notices he's got some stalkers. Uh, He turns to them and he says, what do you want? Uh, Their answer is very simple. Where are you staying? Teacher, where are you staying? They call him rabbi, call him teacher. They haven't fully grasped who he is. Where are you staying? They say, and Jesus says, come and you will see. That is an invitation full of promise. They may have thought he was just going to show us where he lives. But actually, Jesus is saying, you're going to see who I am. You call me teacher. But you're going to see who I am. Come and you will see. And that's the promise. To all of us, as we follow Jesus, as we come to him, as our sins are washed away, as they are forgiven, the promise is we'll see him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what we're told. That's what Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount again. Come and you will see. That's Jesus' promise to every one of us. Come, follow me. You'll see me. 
We'll see him in three amazing places. Firstly, we'll, we'll see him in the pages of our Bible. Every page, every book, Old Testament, New Testament, reveals Jesus to us. This is the book about him. So much so when the Pharisees were there with their their first testament, with the Old Testament there in their hands, trying to catch Jesus out. He says to them, diligently you study this because you think by it you will have eternal life. Yet you miss the one whom it is about. That's what Jesus says. This book is about him, page after page. Uh, the Renaissance scholar Erasmus wrote this. This is from the introduction of John Stott's book, uh, The Incomparable Christ. Erasmus writes, The Bible will give Christ to you in such an intimacy, so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your eyes. That's quite a statement. The Bible will give Christ to you in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your eyes. What a gift. What a gift. We see Jesus here. Second place we see Jesus is in the people around us. They care for us and they love us. See Jesus in the circumstances and the moving and the shaping of things around us because he works in all things for the good of those who love him and follow him according to his purposes. And we'll see him in the faces of the broken and the lost, the marginalized and those on the fringe. We will see Jesus there. It's a famous story. I've told it so many times here. Uh, Indulge me and let me tell it. One last time. It's the story of Mother Teresa working in Calcutta. And there's a big American, loads of money, who's gone out to India to meet her. He wants to meet her. He hasn't got an appointment. He just hangs around. And eventually, after days and hours of waiting, he finally is in the same room as Mother Teresa. And he just doesn't know what to say. He's lost for words. And just said, ma'am, it's lovely to meet you. It's just wonderful to meet you. She looks up at this big American and says, would you like to meet Jesus? Why, ma'am, that, well, that would be wonderful. And off she goes through the door. And he follows her. He doesn't know what else to do. And follows her down some dirty alleys and through some filthy courtyards to this horrible, dusty place. There's a brick wall that's kind of made out of old breeze blocks and rubble, crudely cemented together. And there in the wall, it is a blanket, just on it. And Mother Teresa goes up to this blanket and she pulls it away and there's this little dark hole. And she says, Jesus is in here. The American sort of squeezes himself down and gets into this hole and his eyes gradually adjust to the darkness in there. And there in the corner is a pile of rags. Mother Teresa's standing beside him now and she says, Jesus is just under those rags. So the American sort of shuffles and stoops his way over, pulls back the rags and there is this thin, emancipated, dying man. 
A fly lands on his eyebrow and walks across it. This isn't Jesus, ma'am, the American says, slightly affronted. This isn't Jesus, ma'am. She looks up at him and she says these words. So as you've done for the least of these, my brothers, you have done for me. The American's eyes well, big tears. Couple fall down his tanned, dusty face. He reaches for his wallet, his billfold. And he says, ma'am, what can I do for you? She grabs hold of his hand and she puts it back. She says, go and find someone that no one else loves and love them. Go find someone no one else loves and love them. Come and you will see, Jesus says, come into line, fall in step, give up your petty stuff and follow me and you will see. And then finally, there's this wonderful moment with Peter. As Peter is brought, very first thing Andrew does is bring him and he comes and Jesus looks at him. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. Simon, as we probably all know, means a reed. Uh, you know, a reed that bends in the wind. And of course, Peter was like that, foot in his mouth, larger than life, act first, think later, speak first, repent later. And Jesus says, actually, you're going to be a rock. As you follow me, as you get in line and fall in step, I'm going to change you from reed into rocky. Because that's what Peter means. Rock. You will be rock. So what about us? Well, as church, God calls us to point to Jesus. God calls us to welcome, to love, to move up on our pews and make space. Not to say, you've stolen my pew. To smile. And when we can, remember names. To welcome and to point. Jesus calls us to follow him. To not go to the left or the right. Jesus says, I'll wash you whiter than the snow. And Jesus says, I'll transform you. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You have given us so much. You have allowed us to see Jesus. You've allowed us to fall in line and get in step. 
Father, would you forgive us our sins? And would you forgive us for those sins we hold against people? Lord, we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord, would you help us to walk that narrow path? Lord, we know wide is the path that leads to destruction. But narrow is the path that leads to life. It's the path of following you. Would you keep us on it? Would you forgive us our sins? Again, I ask you, would you wash us whiter than the snow? Would you give us hearts and hands for the lost and the marginalized? And would you begin and would you complete the work that you've started as you promised you will do and transform us from reeds into rocky. In Jesus' name, amen.